The scripture reading for today can be found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You can follow along with me in your bulletin on page 8 or on the screen it's being projected. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen that remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Revelation is a difficult book. Uh, it's the only one of its kind. There's a lot of imagery and can easily get lost in the images and in every verse. Now, we're not going to be looking at every image. We're not going to be looking at every symbol uh, in this series in particular. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the major themes in, G- in Jesus' letters to three of the seven churches. What are these letters? You need to know <clears throat> that the New Testament consists of many letters written by p- folks like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John. But this is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is speaking directly to the church himself. Through the Apostle John, the Apostle John is exiled and he's being persecuted and he's writing to Christians all over the Roman Empire, the known world in that time. They are suffering, they're being persecuted. And, and look, I'm gonna just gonna cut to the chase here. How do you apply this? We live in a modern empire. We live in a pluralistic society that's hostile to the Christian faith, hostile to Christian values. We are constantly being pressured to adapt to society, to accommodate, to step on, you know, we don't want to step on people's toes, especially in society, so we want to accommodate modern values at every level of society. Our children are being taught things that, that counter the Christian values. If you're a student, you're daily pressured to think differently than Christian values. Uh, And as a working adult, you're constantly living in or near the city. You're going to be inundated with things that are counter to Christian values. And many of us here, we're caving. We're giving into those fears. We're giving into the pressures uh, of society at the cost of our intimacy with God. And the first uh, part of the revelation, and the first part of what we saw this last week, there's a vision of Jesus in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, his victory. Why is that important? Think about this. Some of you have been told growing up that the book of Revelation is almost like a roadmap, a roadmap for all the things that are going to happen, like literally. And, uh, and it's hard to believe uh, because there's so many symbols and images and scary, but you're, you're taught to believe uh, all these things literally to the end. But if that were the case, think about it. What kind of help would that have been to Christians who are suffering in that moment, who are, who are being pressured and caving in in that moment? What kind of hope is that going to offer us who are caving in right now? A play-by-play of what's going to happen tomorrow, that's never going to give you poise. That's not going to give you the, the courage that you need. But what the book does do is it gives us a picture of the real Jesus 
real reality, a glorious picture, the brilliant picture of the wise and powerful Jesus, and his words have power. And the most important thing is he's here. He's present. He's with you in your suffering. That's what you need to hear. That's what you need to experience. The book of Revelation was written to make us bold. And yet immediately after this incredible vision of Jesus that John kind of shares in chapter 1, he leads right into these seven letters to the church. And in each of these letters, Jesus says this. He says, I know you. I see you. I see your deeds. I know your deeds, he says. I see what you do, and you need to repent. In other words, I want to make you bold. I want to give you a real confidence. But if you really want to overcome the pressures that you're facing every day to blend in with society, you need to be humble. You need to repent. You need to lower yourself. You need to submit yourself. You need to surrender yourself so that Jesus' brilliance, Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' power and his glory will be bigger in your life so you will live a big life. How? That's the question. Jesus' letter to the church of Sardis shows us three things. It gives us a diagnosis of our condition, the symptoms of that condition, and then the cure for that condition. The diagnosis, the symptoms, and then the cure. First, we're going to be looking at the diagnosis. In verse 1, Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What is he saying? First, if you look really carefully at this letter, Jesus, he never charges the church in Sardis with poor doctrine. He never charges the church with poor theology or poor teaching. In other books, in other letters, you see that there are hints of false teaching or heresy that, that have been threatening to drive the people away from the gospel, but not here. And so, and scholars agree with this, that the people of Sardis, they taught the word of God with clarity, with truth. And in verse 1, they had the reputation of being alive. Friends, this is really, really important. Why? Because if you look around, if you've been in our church for a little bit, you'll see we, Metro, Metro has the reputation of being alive. Metro, when people uh, look at Metro, they say, that is a vibrant church. That church is alive. And yet, what Jesus is saying here is that you could be dead. You could be dead. We need to pay attention. Sardis was marked by growth. Metro is marked by growth. Sardis is marked by vibrancy. Metro is marked by upbeat, vibrant culture. Sardis is marked by activity where they're doing a lot. Metro, we just had a, a huge summer batch yesterday with our community. We're doing a lot. And we have a great reputation. When the people talked about Sardis, they said, that is a dynamic church. They do a lot. And yet Jesus says in verse 1, you're dead. Outwardly, you look alive. You're great. But inside, you are dead asleep. And so in verse 2, he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. What does that mean? You need to listen. Think about the reasons why you would choose a church to go to. Think about the reason. I mean, some of you think back to why you chose Metro. Now, I've heard over the years people say, well, Metro does a lot. 
They're committed to justice and mercy. They're a compassionate church. They're embraced by the people in the neighborhood. That's what we need. We need a church that's going to stand up in the neighborhood and be embraced by the people instead of always being shunned by the people. And then there are people who say, well, I'm a very educated person, and Metro is very, very dedicated to sound doctrine and sound theology. That's what I'm about. Of course, there's always going to be people, if they're really honest with themselves, they're going to say, well, I mean, Metro is a very popular church. There's a lot of people there. Uh, It's a very dynamic community. But look at this. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And he says, your deeds are incomplete. In other words, I don't have an issue with what you do. I don't have an issue with, with your doctrine. He's not chastising what they do. He's not saying, well, you're doing this wrong. He says, I know what you do. I see your deeds. He doesn't challenge their doctrine. He doesn't challenge those deeds. He says, you've got a great reputation, but you've lost yourself internally. You've lost yourself. Something is wrong in the core. You see, when you're dead, your core just kind of comes to a halt. It stops working. The heart stops beating. The brain stops stops functioning. He says, something is wrong with your heart. Something is wrong with the core, that engine, and it's dead. It's incomplete. It's not running anymore. It's empty. It's about to die. And so he says, repent. What's the issue? In verses 3 and 4, he gives us a clue. Verse 3, he says, remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. In verse 4, he says, yet you, he's talking to church, yet you, there are few people among you who have not soiled their clothes. So we got to kind of put this together. He says, I want you to remember, because you've soiled, most of you have soiled your clothes. What does that mean? Because in essence, what he's saying is that the church in Sardis forgot something. And it must have been really important because when they forgot They've been given these clean outfits, these new outfits that are clean and white, and they've been soiled. They're completely filthy. What does that mean? In other words, the church of Sardis, they taught with great doctrine, sound doctrine. They know all the right things to say. But Jesus says, you don't remember what you received. You don't remember what you received and heard, and you don't obey it. In other words, you've abandoned it. Like, you know the stuff, and it's good. You'll nod at worship. You'll raise your hands. You know that age-old phrase, Christians, they don't tell lies. They sing them. But he says, you've compromised. You're soiled. You've got these clean garments, and they're no longer, like, you've soiled them. And he says, I'm coming like a thief. You are dead because you've forgotten God. You didn't forget about God. Your theology seems good. But you forgot God. You forgot the gospel. Every time you've had the opportunity to live out your faith in Jesus in your private life, in your public life, you've accommodated over and over. You've accommodated the world's values. In this modern society, you've just given in. Sardis was a wealthy city. You need to know that. And in this kind of wealthy complex of a city, they were also an idolatrous city. It was in the Roman Empire. And so the temple of Artemis was located in Sardis. So wealth and power and just like sexual relationships were rampant in this society. Powerful influences, not too different from being in the city of Philadelphia. Because wealth and power and sex, those are our real gods today. 
And what Jesus is saying, he, what he's saying is, you, many of you, you act like a Christian. You talk like you know me, like you know the word, like you know God's promises and his commands. But I know your deeds. And you have compromised your faith. You've compromised the gospel at the heart. The gospel gives you life. The gospel is your engine that makes everything run, and it's gone bad. Your heart has gone bad. You're dead. You're ineffective. You've over-accommodated. You've over-adapted to society. But you do all these things, and people all over the world, they look at you, and they say, wow, you, he must be alive. He knows his stuff. He seems to really, really understand this stuff. He's alive. She's alive. She really seems to be, like, faithful. People all over are saying, this church is vibrant. But Jesus says, but I see you, and you're not. It's not that you forgot about God. You've got sound doctrine, sound theology with clarity. But you've forgotten God. Your life stopped being shaped by your intimacy with me, by your relationship with me. So your deeds are rootless, and they are fruitless. They're empty. If you're already compromising, think about this. If you're already compromising your relationship with God at the start of your educational career, there are many of you here, college students, you're, you're in it. You're new and you're free and this is a kind of, every, every experience is new. But if you already start to compromise your relationship with God at the start of your educational career, and on older folks, I mean, in your careers, in your families, think about it. It just, it doesn't get easier. You think, oh, at this point, if I could just get that, you know, get that job, get that offer, then it'll be enough. But it's not, you see? It just continues to pile on because then it's about houses and neighborhoods. Then it's about marriage and maintaining that family and the children. And then the children have to go to school, you see? It's never going to end, you see? So if you start compromising at the start of all of that, you're over-adapting. What makes you think that you're going to pursue intimacy with God after you graduate or after you, as you start to move up with all the pressures that come with that and the layoffs and the terminations that you can endure? And you will. I mean, they say on the average, a person endures about three of those in his lifetime at the least. What's going to enable you to continue to pursue your relationship with God and be shaped by the gospel as you move up after multiple children? Like that psalmist who says, my cup overflows. We're more like coffee. I'll tell you why we're like coffee. Coffee by itself, strong, rich, bold, powerful, keeps you alert. But the more you start to add that cream and sugar, boy, what happens? You start to add that cream and sugar, it stops even tasting like coffee. The bite goes away. The sting goes away. The more you start to compromise that coffee, what happens? What used to be strong starts to become mild. What used to keep you awake starts to put you to sleep. And Jesus is saying, you're dead asleep. Some of y'all, your faith got too much coffee and sugar. Why does Jesus say in verse 3, if you don't wake up, if you don't repent, I'm going to come like a thief. You know what a thief does? You know what a thief does. He takes away everything that you ever valued in your life. Jesus is saying, one day I'm going to come like a thief. And look, anything that you've ever valued here more than me, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it all. 
there's a story about this young couple. I heard this years ago. This young couple uh, just graduated uh, from a stellar institution and uh, they approached their parents because they decided to commit their lives to missions, to global missions. They're gonna go away to a foreign country and just evangelize and witness and minister to people. And you know, the, the parents are thinking about the amount of money that they wasted on this education for this child and her husband and, and they're thinking, my goodness, like, can't you just wait a while? Why don't you work for a decade? Why don't you make some money, save a little bit, invest a little bit so when you come back, you have something to live off of. I just need to make sure that you are secure and that, you are, that you're, you're, you're going to be okay. And, this, and these children, they, they respond and say, Mom, Dad, do you know that we are living on a ball of rock that is hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour, and one day it's going to just come to an end, and the earth is just going to open up, and everything that's ever been on it is going to get swallowed in. Do you think that my 401k is going to rescue me from that? Over and over throughout the Old Testament, we were taught to remember God. We were taught to remember God. In Genesis, you have Abram. He's building up altars. That's why he sets up altars. Joshua, he's setting up memorials. Why? Because they're constantly reminding themselves of, of God, not to forget God. And Judges is a great book. Judges is a book. Cyclically, over and over, you see the people. They remember God, then they forget God. They remember God, then they forget God. And when they forget, it's disastrous. And what happens? God has to send the person to remind them of who he is and what he has done for them to rescue them for them why because it's so easy to forget the idols are too strong and the more wealthy you become the more powerful you become the more status you garner the more connected in your love life you become the more friendships you have the more you start to accumulate and own and build in your life it's easy to want the benefits of the christian while doing your best to hold on to what you got because you think you have it when in reality it has you so the so more and more, Jesus is just getting pushed off to the fringes of your life. I mean, you may come here and act like that. He's at the center because it's easy to look at the screen. It's center. But he ain't on the, he's on the fringes of your life. And every decision you make, he's, at the, he's not at the center of your love life. Only when you need him on your terms. We want to hold on to both. We don't realize it's actually the world and its values that's gotten a hold on us. And so Jesus is being placed on the periphery of our lives and we end up not really going to God for God, we're going to God for things. And so it's like we've been given these clean garments, fresh, clean garments, and now we're just staining them because the more we mix in with that and dabble in this and kind of get pressured into doing this and the more we give in and the more we give in and the more we give in, after a while it doesn't look clean anymore. It looks soiled. You see? We've compromised. And Jesus likens, he equates that with death. That's the condition. That's the diagnosis. Well, what are the symptoms? A couple things. One, verse one, he says, I know your deeds. Let's start with that. I know your deeds. Oh, there's an overemphasis in our lives on what we do, our works, as an indicator of our faith. See, that's the biggest difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says this, I gotta work, I gotta do things, I gotta focus on just being great at what I do. My deeds, that's what counts. That's what counts in this world. I need to obey, I need to show people that I'm a good person, why? Because what's important is the reputation of being alive. 
You see, religion focuses on what you do and, you, and how you obey to avoid repentance. But think about this. Friends, that's why there's so much pressure in our lives every day to always perform. We're putting a lot more weight on success than really what success was even meant to be or do for us. That life becomes about maintaining the image of a Christian more than having the heart of a Christian. What's the heart of a Christian? The gospel shows us my works don't save me. My deeds don't save me. They can't save me. I've been saved only by the work, the sheer grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Religion says what? I obey to be acceptable. And so it's always on the outside. It's always focusing on the outside in. The outside and what's on the outside reflects my, my, what's going on on the inside. So I got to perform on the outside. I got to prove my faith on the outside. I just got to grit my teeth. Sometimes I'm around really annoying people in the church, but I'm just going to grit my teeth. I'm just going to sustain through community group for those two hours. I'm going to work and work and serve. And so we're exhausted and we're anxious and we're angry, you see? There's this constant fear and anger and depression, and we're just jumping around between one of those things, holding petty grudges against people and, and just labeling people in our lives because you've got to step over people in order to feel higher about yourself, to cope with the fact that we are sinful and we are broken and we are so often lost. Jesus says you're dead. The gospel, on the other hand, is inside out. I've been saved solely on the basis of Jesus' moral record, not mine. His goodness, not mine. His success, what he accomplished, not what I've accomplished. His works, not mine. His deeds, not mine. His suffering, not mine. You see? And so I'm accepted, I'm embraced, I'm in love, I'm loved. Therefore, I obey. My deeds are really just a reflection of the transformation that's going in my heart. It's a response of joy, a response of love. I'm alive. And so Jesus here is saying, I see your deeds. Yes, I see that you're serving and you're working hard and, and you need to in some ways. But the power source that you plugged into is going to kill you. It's not going to last you're not being sourced by the gospel. It's not intimately tied to your relationship with me. What is powering you to even be here this morning? Is it joy? Is it a love for Jesus? Are you alive? Or are you just really religious? Secondly, he says, you have the reputation of being alive. Philadelphia is a very unique city uh, because it's got lots of universities, actually the most in the country. And uh, it competes only with Boston as the city with the most universities and secondary schools in the country. And it's got an incredible, robust work environment, work culture. But then it's also got these uh, religious institutions, seminaries places where you learn doctrine and theology and, and you learn about, about uh, the inner workings of the gospel, you see? And so you've got a really interesting mix of people. Why do people come to any city? Why do people come to this city? It's to build. 
It's to build, it's to make a name for ourselves. It's to compete with the best, to be with the best. What's the focus then? It's all gonna be the externals. Your intelligence, your skills, your competencies. I gotta show people that I'm confident. I gotta share with people my pedigree. You see, I worked hard to get this pedigree to earn this. My academic prowess, my theological knowledge. Why do we do that? It's for validation. It's that, well, it's so that people can hire me, but it's also so that people can know you and notice you, you see? If you really go deeper, it's so that people can respect you. People can embrace you. So you'll be loved. It's a form of approval seeking. So people go to you. You see, underneath all that confidence that we often share, think, look at your resumes. Nobody here has an honest resume. Look at your resume. Underneath that resume is just a lot of insecurity. It's a lot of insecurity because you're just so, there's a lot of desperation in that resume. You see? I mean, you may be intelligent by worldly standards, and so people say, that person, she is a leader, he is a leader. He's going to get something done. Even in the church, we tend to overlook character and humility, uh, and we tend to overlook those kind of things, and we tend to focus on skills. And Jesus says, you are dead. I see what you do, and yet you're still dead. Find me a place in the Bible where God says, the intelligent people are what I'm looking for. I need some skilled people who's with me. I need some successful. I need some movers and shakers in this world. They're the ones that I want. They're the ones that we need to do to build. We need in the kingdom to build the kingdom. They're the ones who are in. You won't because he doesn't because those are not the distinguishing factors. You see, religion says I need to be smart. I need to be skilled. I need to be doctrinally right in order to be in. But the gospel says no. You need to be humble. It's the humble who get in. I mean, anyone here who's got a degree or is working towards a degree, anyone who's ever boasted about their skills or even boasted about their doctrine, I don't know why anybody would be like, oh, I got the right doctrine. But like, they do that. They do that here in this city especially. Anyone here who's ever boasted about what they do, I mean, when you first meet somebody, what do you say? What do you do? Or where have you studied, you see? Anyone who's ever boasted about these kind of things, we should examine ourselves because throughout the Bible, what you actually see is the opposite. It's the humble who get in. It's the weak who are in. It's the one on the fringes, the marginalized one that gets in. God is trying to show us, but by overturning our values and saying what you're thinking is upside down, you got to think right side up. And right side up, he's always focused, that's why he's always focusing on the younger, even though everybody prays the elder. He's always looking for the poor and the marginalized, the ones who are on the outskirts of society. And those are the ones who get in first, always. Look throughout the Bible. It's the barren woman, not the one who's got many kids. It's the barren woman who becomes a seed of Jesus, leading to Jesus. It's the poor woman, the prostitute, the destitute. It's the one who, who says, I don't know, but I need it. You see? The reason why they get it is because they're the ones who actually need it. Look, I'm a pastor, and here's my concern. I'm just going to level with you. What we have at Metro right now, we're in a really special moment. Not many churches get to experience these types of special moments. And we've got that reputation of being alive. But why? What is our focus? Because we emphasize gifts and power and status and wisdom and looks, those externals? No. It's the warmth and the winsomeness that's, that's born from humility. That's born from humility because that's born from new life in Jesus. 
totally undeserved. I mean, there are lots of people in this room right now that are saying, man, like, I cannot believe that I'm here worshiping on a Sunday, Sunday morning. I can't believe that. Like, I never would have seen myself doing this five years ago or 10 years ago. That's not me. But somehow, and it's totally undeserved, I'm here. God somehow brought me here, and I'm just amazed by that. It's, that's what generates the warmth and the vibrancy. You see, if you focus on skills and your intelligence and your competencies and your theology and your doctrines, but not a character. How many of you have thought the word holiness last week? That God is calling me to holiness. How many of you guys sat there and said, you know what? God's honor is what I should be pursuing today. That character and humility that is born from repentance. You see, if you don't have that, how are you going to deal with real-life failure? If you don't have the humility and the confidence that comes from the gospel, how are you going to deal with real-life suffering? Like real suffering when it comes. It may be, for some of you, it's like suffering is like on the basketball court. But I'm talking about not just in the office, not just when your child is struggling in school, not just when somebody's criticizing, but the real stuff, like financial destitution, marital failure, marriage struggles, addictions, illness, like serious loss. How are you going to deal with that? What resource do you have? What are you going to remember? What are you going to trust? Well, Jesus says, I want you to remember what you received and what you heard. I want you to remember the gospel. I want you to obey the gospel. I want you to live in line with what you remember. That's what it means to obey. I want you to repent. Re to repent is to say, I refuse to live in line with what, I, with every, what everything else is telling me to live in line with. I'm supposed to trust in my education, trust in my connections, trust in my network or my skills. Trust in the training that I've received from other people. Trust in my friendships and my love life. I'm supposed to place my hope in, my hope is in my kids. I mean, immigrant families. What did they do all this for? They have placed their trust in the fact that one day their children are going to rise to the top. That's what they say. It's worth giving up their lives for, they say. That's what they're going to trust in. What are you going to remember? What are you going to trust? Well, Jesus says, I want you to remember the gospel. The book of Revelation begins with this picture of a real Jesus. Not that cuddly Jesus that you see in portraits, but that real Jesus that is victorious and glorious and brilliant. So brilliant that when you look at him, you can go blind because his fire and his eyes and his feet, they're just going to blow you away. And that's how Revelation 1 begins. Why? Because it's John's way of saying, you forgot. You've forgotten. Some of you here, you've forgotten. Every time you're tempted to make status or your wealth or your, the approval of just the person right next to you, more important than Jesus, you're forgetting. You see that? And Jesus says, you're about to die. Some of you are dead. You see, if you're dead, if he says you're dead, and Jesus has always said, I am life, then what he's saying is that this is the ultimate chasm. We are completely separate. And that's a warning. 
And then you get to verse 4, and he says, yet there's a few of you in Sardis, there's a few of you in the church, you've not soiled your clothes. You stayed with me. You stayed steadfast. Everyone else is saying that they're a Christian, but they forgot. They've compromised their faith, compromised their lives, and they placed Jesus, they placed me on the periphery of their lives, and it's like soiling these clean clothes that they've received, but then here, Jesus says, but there are a few of you who haven't. You've not compromised. Your relationship, your intimacy with God is more important than any relationship you've got. And so his beauty is more important than any beauty you've ever pursued. His kingliness is more important than any authority you're under. You see that? His love is more important than any spouse, and his intimacy is more important than any love relationship or friendship that you've got. In other words, these people have remembered the gospel, and so they are wide awake. They see the real reality beneath the visible reality. What about you? Those few people in the city, those few people in the church, he's not writing to like non-Christians. He's writing to the church. And he's saying, most of you have soiled your clothes, but there are a few of you who are awake. There are a few of you, you're clean. Is that you? These people remember the gospel. Is that you? If you're new to the city, if you're new to Metro, do you get the gospel? That's the most important thing. The question is not, well, I want to be a nicer person. Uh, I'm going to work on myself here. The question is not, I'm a nicer, are you a nicer person? That's what gets the reputation of being alive. The question is not, are you a nicer person, but are you new? Is God's love, is your relationship with God supreme? Does it shape every dimension of your life? That's what it means to be obedient. Faith is not living in line with what you don't know. Faith is living in line with what you do know, with what you've received, with what you've heard. It's to obey and live in line with what you know. That's what it means to remember. How do you know that you're doing that? How do you know that you're alive? I'll give you a couple things. One, is your life characterized by humility? Is there a genuine love for people, for others? A heart of generosity that just comes from a love for people because you're being humbled by the gospel. Is there a genuine gratitude in the face of just battling the desire? I mean, it's not, we're not saying, I don't desire status. I don't desire pursuing some of these things. I don't desire higher salaries. I don't desire, you know, we're not saying that. We're saying, hey, there's a struggle there. There's a battle there. But I see the real Jesus. And that humbles me. That's got to be more important than anything. Secondly, verse 5, he says, he who overcomes, I'm going to make you a pillar. That's what he says. In other words, rather than conforming to the world, which he constantly says is shaking sand. And what the world worships, that's just, you're just on shaky ground. Is there a courage? Is there a confidence? Are you a pillar? Driven by your faith in Jesus, because his love is the only validation that you need. Three, notice, Jesus doesn't say, well, I found your deeds a failure. That's not what he says. Well, I found your deeds imperfect. That's not what he says. He says, I found your deeds incomplete. I have not found your deeds complete. When you look at yourself, all that work that you're doing, is it to prove something? To complete your life? 
I need to work and work because then I'll be okay. Are you trying to complete yourself? Because when people look at me, they'll say, he finally made it. She did it. Because that's an anxious life. Friends, I mean, you know it. That's an anxious life. That's, that's an exhausting life. Lastly, how do you validate that? I mean, you can't validate yourself. There's not a, anybody in this room who says, well, I don't care what people think of me. All, all that matters is what I think about myself. You're a liar. You're lying. No self-respecting businessman, entrepreneur, consultant, medical professional, artist, musician, author, social worker would ever say that. That, oh, I don't care what my boss thinks. I don't care what, what people out there think when I'm presenting a piece of work. All that matters is what I think about yourself. Not if you want to get paid. Not for sure. That's for sure. You need community. What would your community say about you regarding the above? I mean, many of you are plugged into community groups. If you're not, I encourage you strongly, plug into a community group. Why? Because they're a validating resource. What would they say about you? If I were to go to your community group and say, is he a humble person or an arrogant person? What would they say about you? Jesus says, I have not found your deeds complete. They don't offer a cure. Lastly, then what's the cure? How do you get it? On one hand, everybody in this room, no matter who you are, you have to think about, you have to turn inwardly, and you have to ask yourself, do I just look like I'm a believer? Do I just act like I'm alive but I'm really dead? And yet at the same time, we have to remember that Jesus is talking to the whole church. And so we have to ask ourselves as a body, is it possible that we could be sound in our teaching and have a wonderful reputation of being alive and yet be dying? And the answer is absolutely. As a pastor, if you can't admit that, that you are on the brink of falling asleep every day, every week, every moment, you'll never experience that special moment. You see that? These letters were prophetic. What that means is that they're intended to counsel they're intended to rebuke you and warn you and caution you and correct you. Why? Because all churches fall asleep unless the people in the churches are constantly keeping each other awake. Some of you are really awake because you're really careful about not falling asleep. But some of you, remember this, get this, some of you merely experience the experience of being around people who've experienced the personal experience of Jesus, but you've never experienced Jesus yourself. Some of you just merely experienced the experience of being around people who've experienced a personal experience of Jesus, but you never experienced Jesus yourself. And so it's easy to fall asleep when it's like that. You're just going to go with the rest of society, go with the rest of the world, go with your desires and what you want. And, and you may believe you have godly intentions at times. You know, I'm doing this for God at least, but Jesus is really on the periphery of your lives. He's not at the center. Jesus is in the suburbs of your heart. He's not downtown, you see. He's not a downtown, your key decisions, how you spend your money, what you're pursuing in life. You've forgotten God. That heavy, weighty significance of God has been as far from you. You've forgotten it. The glory of God, the mission of God. That's why we've been created. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He is, we've been created by him and for him. You see that? Some of you in college, you were hot and heavy for Jesus. 
You joined those Christian fellowships. You were really, really consistent in your church. But now you've got a mortgage. Some of you, you're far beyond that. You've got multiple mortgages. You've got children, multiple children. And that house that you wanted, that's your dream. That's, that represents your dream. And Jesus is saying, you are asleep. Why? You see, when you're controlled by your dreams, you're sleeping. You get me? That's not reality. You know what reality is? Revelation chapter 1, that picture of Jesus, that is the real reality. So the only way that you're going to wake up is if Jesus becomes more real to you than anything else. By the way, that's why worship is so consistent, why it's vital and critical every week. It's important. Why? Worship is the best, most regular alarm clock. Every week, it's a wake-up call. Why are we anxious in life? It's when the wisdom of Jesus is not as real as your own. You see that? When Jesus' wisdom becomes more real than your own, that's the end of anxiety. Why would we get depressed? I mean, think about it. Some of us, we're just littered in our hearts with moral depravity, just failure. I just failed a lot morally. Why? Because in your mind, your sins are more real to you than Jesus' overcoming sin and overcoming death. You see that? You need to wake up. Because if you're awake, Jesus' love for you, his death for you, and so his wisdom for you, that work becomes more real than your own successes. It becomes more real than your own failures. That's going to take the edge off, the arrogance out of the equation, you see. It's going to lead to an unshakable confidence and power on one hand, and yet because it humbles you, it's going to take away the arrogance of the ego. Why? I mean, the gospel is going to make you humble. Why? Because your sins are so great, God himself had to come and die. And yet, you were so loved that God himself came and died for you. And he was glad to die for you. You see? That's going to give you a very special confidence that cannot be swept away by, pre by the pressures of the people around you. Verse 3, he says, I want you to remember this. Remember this. Go back to what you first received. Go back to the gospel. Be swept away by that, by my love for you, by my commitment to you, by my powerful, just completed work on the cross for you. Be swept away by that. And you know what happens? Then you're going to live in line with that. You're going to obey that. And you're going to repent of the ways that you've abandoned that. And what happens? Verse 5, he who overcomes will be dressed in white. You're clean. You've, you're clean. No matter how much mud is thrown at you, you are clean. And Jesus is right there taking that hit. He's taking that hit. When Jesus encountered Paul on the road to Damascus, he didn't say, Paul, why are you hitting all those people? Why are you killing all those people? Why are you conspiring against all those people? He says, why are you hitting me? Why are you persecuting me? He's right there with you. You see? His love his power will burst into your heart. Repentance, it's not going to earn you God's love. It doesn't earn you God's power, but it accesses that love. It accesses that power. You see that? It unleashes that power into your life so that that love becomes your real reality. Oh, but I worked so hard to get here. What a waste. In John chapter 3, 
Jesus encounters a Pharisee named Nicodemus. You have to understand something. When in the church, when we talk about Pharisees, it's oftentimes very negative. But Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he sought Jesus out in quiet, in the dark. He seeks him out. Pharisees were wealthy, and, and they, were, they were powerful. They were wealthy. They were professionals. And they were great citizens. In fact, every one of us would want to be, live next to a Pharisee because they're model citizens. You see, and so Nicodemus, he, he talks to Nicodemus who's pedigreed and intelligent and studied and godly. I mean, he wants to pursue godliness to the highest tier and he goes to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. You know what he's saying to him? Nicodemus, I get it. You've got all these accolades. You have the reputation of being alive, but guess what? You need to start over. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, intelligent and wealthy and respected and well-known. He could have easily been like, who are you? What place did you graduate from? Do you know who I studied under? Do you know how many people have, have ordained me and lifted me up? Who's ever validated you? But he doesn't. He says, how? I mean, how is that possible? How do I start over? It's, it's incredible for him. I mean, he's respected and well-known, and Jesus is saying, yeah, that's great for you right now, but if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You need to start all over. How? Throughout the Bible, over and over you see the prayer, God, remember me. Remember me, but forget my sins. But on the cross, what happens? Jesus Christ is being mocked, and he's insulted. He's covered in mockery, covered in insults, covered in blood. He's soiled. He's soiled on the outside with blood. He's soiled emotionally and psychologically. Physically, he is just a broken mess. You see that? And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this is the ultimate. Yeah, he's been stripped naked. Nakedness is an idiom for shame in the Bible. He's been stripped naked, so he is covered in blood, covered in insults, covered in shame. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, this is the ultimate shame. This is the ultimate mockery. This is the ultimate rejection. The ultimate, we talked about death and life, the separation. I'm separated from God. I'm separated from life. God is the center, the core of my engine. And it's like my heart has been ripped away from me. He said, my engine has been torn out, and so I'm dead. Why? He says, God, you've forgotten me. You forgot. And yet not once, even still, do you know he never compromised his love for his people? Not once did he compromise the glory of God. I mean, look at the steadfast love of Jesus. Look at the faithful love of Jesus, the sacrificial love of Jesus, the enduring love of Jesus to the end. And you're worried about your 401K? Jesus Christ, he's saying, I for I'm forgotten. Why? So we could be remembered. And so on the cross, that criminal that's crucified next to Jesus says, will you remember me? That's an amazing prayer. And Jesus says what? Today, you're going to be with me. Jesus is stripped naked. Why? So we could be covered. Covered in him. Jesus' body just covered in mockery and blood. 
Why? So that we would be wiped clean. We would be covered in white. Jesus Christ, he lost the ultimate status. Why? I mean, you're worried about what? The approval of your peers? We're clothed in white. We're clean. The gospel, God's love, is the only validation that you will ever need. That's the good news of the gospel. What is it? On the cross, he cries out, it is finished. In other words, my work is complete. My deeds can now be found complete. The debt is paid. It's over so that you can be safe. You, this is the ultimate security. You can rest. The mark of a genuine Christian is not how well you perform, not how well you work, but how well you rest in Jesus. It's not, the mark of a Christian is not your reputation as a good person or a good leader, but a humble person and a repentant leader always going back to the gospel. They're awake. Are you awake? That's how you live a big life, friends. That's how you become great. I mean, we want to pursue greatness. That's how you become great. That's the way that you have poise and coverage, uh, uh, poise and confidence in any suffering. Jesus Christ is saying right now, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So wake up. He's talking to us. Let's pray.